We're taking our Bibles. We're headed over to Matthew to get started for our Bible study this morning. Matthew chapter 7, if you would join me there, please. Matthew chapter 7, as we embark in another sermon that's going with the series that we're talking about, death and dying. Before I embark in that, for some of you, this might feel nostalgic being in this room. This is where we used to have our auditorium when we built in 1984. Right above me, that's the speakers for the auditorium. This used to be the baptistry area, the counseling rooms, the choir loft, and there used to be a half moon shaped platform that was a whole lot bigger than this platform where I could move and maneuver. Our auditorium used to have a center aisle right there was the four doors right in the middle and we had the outside doors with a sloped floor here so that when you look in the back it's all tapered down and a lot of the pews that we have in the balcony used to be the pews that were right here so some of the folk in the morning service were commenting they remember hanging these things doing this doing that in the building and so just doing a memory walk that here we are this morning several decades later right back here where we started from in this room but the message that we preach as well is the same old, same old message. It's not that it's boring, but it's a wonderful message. A message that's about when we die, that we go to heaven, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about that, about what it's going to be like to be in heaven. We talked about heaven itself, and what, it's, what our loved ones are feeling, what it will be like for us if we were to die and go into heaven. We talked about it being a place where it's absolutely remarkable, reunions. There's all kinds of reunions rejoicing and, and all kinds of activity taking place. We talked about how it's relevant to you and me. God has made this heaven for us to experience. He doesn't need a heaven. He doesn't need a place. He doesn't need mansions. He's done it for us. And how he's provided for that and given it to us. That it is just this amazing place that ought to just thrill our hearts to think that when we pass away, we're going to go and be there in that heaven. In fact, there was one lady who heard the bad news that she was going to pass away soon. The story that a preacher shared several years ago, that this lady came to him and said, Pastor, I've just found out, I'm coming from the doctor, that I'm going to die within three months. And so, Pastor, I want to talk about preparing the funeral, things that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks in this series about how to prepare, what to do, and to, to have yourselves ready for that moment. She says, well, I want to be ready. And so she went over some of the things for the service and for the viewing. And she made a comment while she was talking. She says, Pastor, what I want to make sure that you do is you make sure that that undertaker, he puts a fork in my hand when I'm laying in that casket. Kind of an odd request to ask. Now, I've seen all kinds of things in caskets that people have put in and asked and things that they, that they put in there they don't want friends and family to know about, but they put in there. But this gal says, I want it there and I want to be holding it in my hand. And the pastor had the curious questions like you and me, like what in the world do you want to die and be holding a fork when you come by the viewing? She says, well, here's why. She said, I love church banquets. I love the potlucks. I love those things. And she said, the favorite part of the meal is when they come walking by and they collect the plate and they say, but keep your, keep your fork. Hang on to your fork. She says, I love going to families' homes where they say, oh, by the way, now, now you do, we're going to clean up, but keep your fork because the fork means dessert. And she says, dessert is the best part of the meal. And it's always when we keep our fork, it means something better is ahead. Something really exciting. She says, so when I'm laying in the casket, I want to be holding a fork so everybody knows something better is ahead. And she says, I want you to share that with people. And he said, it was amazing at that funeral service how many people walk by and go, what's with the fork? You know, what's going on? He said, it gave him a tremendous opportunity to share the gospel that this woman had faith that there was something better ahead. And that's true for us who are believers. We can hold the fork. 
that there's something much better ahead. But it's not true for everybody. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is preaching a message. And as he's preaching the message, he makes a comment that this fork isn't for everybody. In fact, the majority of people aren't going to experience a fork. It says in verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, verse 13. And many there be which go thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life. And few there be that enter in or find it. His point is the majority of people are going to end up in hell. That's sad. That's not what God desires. That's not what God planned. In fact, God has sent his prophets. He has sent messengers. He has given us the word. He has even left us here to tell people so that they don't end up in that place. But the majority of people will end up in the place of destruction. Now, what's that place like? Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Now, what we've talked about from this text so far is we've talked about what heaven is like. And we've talked about what we are like. Last Sunday, we spent time Sunday evening talking about what is our spirit like when it, when it leaves this body and goes to heaven. And we talked about a lot of different details about our spirit, how that it's still human. It remembers. It moves. It, it has communication. Well, what we want to look at this morning from the same text is what about the other place? What about the experience for those who do not go to heaven? Now, I know some of you are already thinking, wait a minute, there is no hell. Let me say right off the bat, hell is real. Hell is real. How do I know that? Well, I know that for a number of reasons. I understand. The majority of people don't believe in a hell. I understand that in the polls that are taken, that, that, it's own, that it's very clear that in America itself, that only one in, in eight Americans who go to church every week believe in a hell. One in eight only. I understand for every 120 people in America by the surveys that say that they're going to heaven, only one says he has the possibility of going to hell. I understand it's denied. That people say that there isn't such a place. I understand that that's, that happens. But just because somebody denies it doesn't mean it's not real. Let me give you an illustration. Muammar Gaddafi, ever hear of him? A tyrant in the Middle East area. Here in Libya, several years ago, that when he was in control, he and Great Britain had a falling out. Great Britain's response was, we're going to remove our embassy from Beirut. His response, we're going to remove Great Britain. Now, he didn't attack, but he had a law that was passed. That from now on, any map that is sold or published or put in schools will no longer have a Great Britain on that map. And so in his mind, he just eradicated and eliminated Great Britain. So the kids couldn't learn about it. Nobody could publish it. All the maps that had Great Britain had to be redone, taken away, so that now the North Seas is all that's there expanded, but no Great Britain, no England. By somebody saying that there is no England, does that make it a fact? No. No. How foolish. England is still there. England is, is still in the North Sea area. And by just saying it doesn't exist doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Now, some people will say to you, well, hell in the Bible is just a symbol. If that's the case, if only the descriptions of hell mean something symbolic, then hell is far worse than the Bible predicts. Because every symbol is given to try to express and describe something that is far bigger or better or more, more dominant than the symbol itself. Just to say, well, hell is here on earth. That's foolish. Hell is a real place. How do I know that? I know it because reason demands there's a hell. I say that because of this. You as parents, when you raise kids, you make rules. With every rule, you have some type of response. If it's not followed, there's a consequence. Governments, they make laws. There's always a consequence for violating the rule. 
God has established moral codes. God, who is the great redeemer, is also the great moralizer. And God has set up codes by which people are to live. Those who violate, it stands to reason, it's just logical, there's going to be a consequence for those who reject him. Well, the Bible talks about hell. In fact, there are well over 100 verses in the New Testament alone that talk about hell. For every verse that talks about heaven, there is three that talk about hell in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about hell frequently. In fact, Luke 16, he's giving a description of it. He says, there was a certain rich man, I'm in Luke 16, verse 19. There's a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried in by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now we get a little bit of a description so far what heaven is like. By the way, tonight I'll expand upon that a little bit more. Tonight we'll talk about what heaven will we live in forever and ever. We sing the song, this world is not my home. I'm just a pastor through. Is that true? I don't think so. The Bible indicates heaven's going to come to this earth eventually. Will there be animals there? What will they be like? Will we have family there? Will we remember? What are we going to do in that heaven that's back here on earth? We'll talk about that in tonight. But right now, let's continue with the description now that he gives about hell. And in hell, verse 23, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in, my, in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted, you are tormented. And besides... Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from where you're at. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send, send somebody, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify unto them lest they also come unto this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, then they will repent. If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Hell is real. The Bible speaks about it. Jesus speaks about it. If you say there is no hell, based on this text, then you have to say there's no heaven. They're both there. If you say there is no hell, then you have to say Jesus is wrong. Jesus is imagining. Jesus is a huckster. Jesus is a liar. There's a hell. There's a real hell. It's described in this text as not only being real, but second, it is a place of torments. He says, literally, he said, when he calls out, he said in verse 23, being in torments. Then we have the description of the torments that he has physically. There he is in hell in flames, burning experiencing with his spirit body, experiencing the sensation of flames and torture to the point that in his physical suffering he says, just give me a drop, just one drop of water to, re, to help take away some of this agony. There's the physical pain of the flames. There's the physical pain of the thirst. There's the physical pain of this idea of this torments. Jesus described where the worm dieth not, where there, there is unquenchable flames. There's torments, not only physically, but there's torments emotionally. 
Here he is, emotionally, knowing that, that his, his place in this hell is going to be forever and ever. He can't get out. He can't escape. Here he is in this place of torment, worried about his family. You know how that is. You as parents, when your children were really sick, high fever, you'd stand above that crib and you'd say, oh Lord, take it away, give it to me. He is concerned about his family. He doesn't want his family to be there. And he knows that they are threatened, that they are coming that way. And he's got the torment that he did not do something for his family. That they may join him. He's got the torment of knowing he's never getting out of here, that it's never going to stop, that he, he has no escape, totally bereft of all hope. He's got the tor torment socially, that he is separated from those that he looks and he sees, that they have comfort, that they have peace, that they have enjoyment, and here he is, cast into this outer darkness, that he is suffering, that he is in flames, that he is in torment. That's what hell is like. It is a place of actual torment. I was telling the earlier crowd about a story that I'd heard from a preacher who had been preaching in the Midwest area, he went into Cleveland, was holding meetings. The pastor said something horrible happened this past week. He was visited by a young man, a young man who was working at the local hospital. And he said that young man was there in the ER room and, and something happened the night before that caused him such terror and such, such agony of spirit that he came and saw that pastor this morning and said, please help me. I need some type of consolation. You see, what happened was this. The young man working in the, in the ER, one of the patients brought in was about his own age. A guy who had just graduated from his college class and now was working in a chemical factory there in Cleveland. The young man working in the factory was, was enjoying his job and he was learning new things about chemical compounds that were being made at this factory, at this plant. Now, I don't remember the name of it. It's a technical term. But the name of this one chemical, the properties of this one chemical was that whenever you would expose it and get it in contact with any type of water, it would just explode. And it would burst into flames. And so in the lab, they would work with this chemical. And so this young man was so enamored with it that sometimes he would play with it at work and just drop a, a little smidgen of it on a spoon and watch a person in flames. And he got scolded a couple times. Well, he wasn't well accepted by his friends, and so he got this idea that I'm going to go to a party tonight. And when I go to that party tonight, I'm going to take some of this chemical. And when I get there, I'm going to entertain everybody with this chemical, and they're going to be impressed by me. So he gets to the party, he has a little container of this chemical, and he gets there, and they're doing the party thing, and there's a coffee table there in the living room, and he says, hey, you guys want to see something cool? And a lot of the people ignored him, but he put a little bit of water there, a few little spritz of water, and then he put the chemical on, and poof, now everybody was looking at him. He was the center of attention. He put a little bit more water, poof, poof, poof. He was enjoying himself. And he said, you know, they said, oh, more, more. He said, hey, come with me, go to the kitchen. They go in the kitchen and he poured some water into the sink so that the bottom of the sink was kind of full. And then he was going to take a large amount of that chemical and throw it in there. But right about then, the crowd was itching to get closer and closer and somebody bumped his elbow. His elbow came up and he got the chemical on his face, his neck, his arms. And he started coughing because he breathed in a little bit. One of the ladies nearby wanted to help him out, so she dabbed the cloth in the sink and started dabbing. He burst into, literally, into agonizing flames. Somebody else said, well, we've got to do more. And they, without thinking, they, they grabbed a wet rag. Now it was more. They rushed him to the hospital. He comes into the ER. The young man who was seeking out his counsel from his pastor who had to help 
And one of the nurses right away, she said, oh, he's a chemical burn. We have to get some water solution there. She, without realizing what it was, she dabbed the cotton gauze, uh, gauze in the water. She started dabbing more flames. The young man is in terror and in pain. My God, my God, don't any of you care? I'm burning like I'm in hell. They didn't know any way they could deal with him. The doctor came in and said, it's in your pores. We have to do something. We basically have to fillet a layer or two of your skin. The young man had to help hold him down. He said, it was horrific. It was horrific. He's talking to his pastor and he said, it was the most agonizing situation I've ever seen in my life. He said, pastor, tell me. Tell me that that's not really like what hell is like. Tell me that people don't experience something like that for all eternity. The pastor couldn't. Because hell is a place of torments. It is a horrible place. Not only is it real, not only is it a place of torments, but let's make another observation here about hell. It is a place that we would describe this way. We would say it is inescapable. It is inescapable. Well, we already read that in verse 26. I want to get out of here. Send somebody to come and give me. No, no, there's a great gulf fixed. You cannot escape. They cannot come to you. When you're there, you're there. The Bible said, is it appointed unto man once to die and after that, what? The judgment. So when people end up in there, in, the, in this place, they don't get out. They don't get out. I remind you, they have a momentary reprieve in history. In the future, there's a momentary reprieve. It is when hell is being cast into the lake of fire, when they are resurrected, their bodies and their spirits are put together according to Revelation 21. At the great white throne judgment, they are brought out of hell. They're put together with their body. They are judged for eternity, and then their resurrected body is put right back into the lake of fire. So it's a momentary reprieve, not so that they can call upon Christ, but so they can get their resurrected body and then into the lake of fire. It, it's, it's long-lasting, folk. It's inescapable. It is something that is horrific. It's awful. You should go with me on calls this week. You should go with me and go visit one of our, uh, one of our folk who is in intense agony and pain from their disease, who will stand there and say, Pastor, please, help me out here. Why is it I'm having such agony and such pain? Is there any relief that God will give me? When am I going to get some relief from this? The pain, even though with the medication, is so unbearable that they are tired, they are exhausted, they are worn down physically, emotionally, spiritually. Well, hell is like that, where there is no end. For this dear saint, they have the hope that when Christ takes them, they're going to be in heaven and it's going to be done and over with. But somebody in hell, it's never-ending pain. It is wearing, it is discouraging for the person who is in hell, they have no option. They are cast into outer darkness, into a loneliness, if you would. Come and visit with me. Go and let's visit some people like Adon and Doris Paul. And you sit there and you listen to them talk about how they love their spouse. They've been married 70, 71 years. And the hardest thing of this, of this time that they're going through now is the last few months, they can't live together anymore. He's in one room, she's in another spot. And for them, the horror of this, of this occasion right now is they're being well taken care of, they have their food, they have their shelter, but there's a loneliness. Oh, they see each other periodically during the day. But after living together for 70, 71 years, there's a loneliness. It's a hardship. 
Those who end up in hell have not even that momentary visits. They are cast into outer darkness, it says. And worst of all, not only separated from others, but they're separated from God Almighty. Oh, it's a place. Place of punishment. It's a place that's real. It's a place that is inescapable. Let's add this. It's an eternal place. It's eternal. Now, I understand. I understand that some of you have been exposed to some of the new teaching that is sweeping across America. The new teaching coming out of seminaries. It's called annihilationalism. It is based upon Matthew and 1 Peter where there's two verses that talk about those who are damned are destroyed. And the word that is used is one of the, de one of the definitions is that they cease to exist. Therefore, there's this whole theology built now and being promoted and in evangelical, that is teach, uh, churches that preach the word and you must be born again, that is now sweeping our nation that says, well, hell is only a short time and then those people in hell, they're annihilated. They're put out of their misery. They're like a pet who is in agony and mercy and grace says you put them out of the agony. I understand that that teaching is appealing and is popular and it makes God look like, you know, God is a God of mercy by putting out of agony, so to speak. And that's the argument for it based on that word destroyed. But that word doesn't always mean that they are put out of existence. The word that is used in those texts can also mean suffering and agony and, and put way down. The words in the New Testament that is used to describe hell, like in Matthew 25, verse 45, 46, Jesus says, into everlasting life, inos life, or everlasting damnation or punishment. Inos, punishment. Well, if heaven is inos and eternal, then when you use the same word to describe hell, isn't it make sense? It's inos as well, is eternal. In fact, God is called some 21 times in the New Testament, Ainos God. Is he only for a while? He's everlasting. Let me throw this argument to you. Didn't Jesus take your punishment on the cross? Yes or no? Yes. So he suffered all the punishment for all sin. Well, if the punishment for sin is annihilation, how is it Jesus is still around? If he suffered for my punishment... He suffered my separation from God. He suffered in that cross and in, the, in the, that period of time, he suffered the, the agony of the pain and, and all that was involved with the punishment of my sin and your sin. It's to the point that he crawls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he is suffering our hell, our, our punishment. He is not annihilated. He is going through pain. Pain that is social, that is physical and social and emotional. Suffering for our sins. Hell is eternal. There's no escape from it. Something else that strikes me about the hell, and it's, this is an odd one, okay, it's from the text, and you need to listen clearly. Hell is a place that, well, I'm going to use the term, it doesn't fit well verb-wise, but it's a deserving place. Number five, it's a deserving place. What I mean by that is this. Some will crawl out and say, why would, a, why would a loving God put anybody in hell? God did not intend for anyone to go to hell. It's not even made for people. What is hell made for? The devil and his angels. People who go to hell, they are going against the will of God and the desires of God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
God is so desirous that everybody join him, he gives us a word that tells us about, about heaven and he invites you. He sent his prophets. He sent his son. He sends his Holy Spirit. He leaves us on this world so that we can tell others. He doesn't want them to go to hell. If men go to hell, it's because they choose to reject and they choose to do their own thing. That's exactly what it says in this text that the rich man did. In verse 25, watch what he says. Son, Father Abraham talking to the rich man, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and likewise Lazarus evil. He is now comforted, you are tormented. Well, wait, 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 pastor. Does, is that passage saying that whoever suffers a lot in this life, they are guaranteed heaven? No. No, that's not what it means. Is it saying that, that uh, if we're good enough people, then we get to heaven. That is exactly what it's warning against, that type of thinking. You see, you have to understand, to whom was Jesus giving this, para, this, this story? Not a parable, but a real story. To whom was he talking to at that moment? His audience makes all the difference in understanding this. He's talking to a Jewish crowd. A Jewish crowd that is filled with Pharisees and scribes and, and religious leaders. A Jewish crowd that has a mindset religiously. Their mindset said this. Their mindset said if anybody has anything bad happening in their life, it's because they're a bad person. Do you remember in John 9, Jesus is walking into the temple? And as he's walking into the temple, there's a blind man there. And Jesus' disciples said, who did sin, this man or his parents? That's Jewish thinking. Jewish thinking says if you have a flat tire, you did something bad that day. Jewish thinking back in those days, if you didn't have food on the table, you did something wrong. Jewish thinking back in those days, if you got sick with the flu, you must be doing something wrong. Healthy people are doing things right. Therefore, and they based this upon the Old Testament, which said that if you obey my commandments, I will bless you. And this part of the blessing was the physical blessings. And so in their thinking, if somebody has a lot of physical blessings like money, food, clothing. It's because they're being blessed of God because they're really, really good people. So the Jewish thinking at that time was, oh, wait a minute. To be favored by God, it's, it all works together. I've got to be rich. To be favored by God, I've got to get things. Therefore, the most important thing in this life is to get rich, get things, because that proves that I'm good enough that I get into heaven. Those people who are poor, who are the dogs lick their sores, they're bad. They're bad people. Well, Jesus is talking to that crowd. And when he says, now think about this, this is the mindset. When he says, the rich man opened his eyes and being in hell, those people would go, what? A rich man in hell? Rich men always go to heaven. And his point was, no, they don't. And then he, then he says, and Lazarus, the poor man, he's in Abraham's bosom. Their reaction would be, that makes no sense. It's totally contrary to what they've been told by their preachers and their teachers who have been saying, you just work hard enough, and if you're successful, you're guaranteed heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No, you can be wealthy in this earth in good things, in, in, I should say in goods. You can be wealthy but very poor spiritually. And he's been calling and preaching this for the last two and a half years when he tells the story. He's been saying to people, you need to repent, you need to repent. What good is it if you gain the whole world and yet lose your, your soul? 
And so when Abraham responds, he says, remember in your lifetime? Remember you had all those good things? You thought that that was the only thing. That's why you worked. That's why you got those things. That's why your friend built his barns to be it bigger and bigger because you thought self-made person, rich person, successful person guarantees heaven. And you wouldn't even listen to the prophets. You want, you want me now to send somebody from heaven to go and warn them, but you wouldn't listen to the prophets. You wouldn't listen to Moses. You won't even listen to the Son of God who has come from heaven that says, repent. And as a result, the rich man ends up in hell. Why? Because he has deluded himself into thinking, I'm good enough because I've got things. I'm good enough because I've got popularity and prestige. I'm good enough because I am who I am. Where the poor man, obviously Lazarus, has come to a point of total destitution spiritually as well as physically. You see, the Bible indicates that hell is a deserving place for those of us who are sinners. Oh, well, that creates a problem. Because how many have sinned and come short of the glory of God? All of us. In fact, go to Revelation 21. Let's start backwards here for just a few moments. Revelation 21 is a descriptive passage of who ends up in hell into the lake of fire forever and ever. I want you to see something. He's describing in Revelation 21, and he's talking to people who some of them will think, oh yeah, the really, really bad, bad ones, they end up in hell. I want you to catch what God says. And he does agree that the really, really bad, bad, you know, are deserving. Look at Revelation 21 verse 8. He's describing those in the lake of fire that he's talked about in the previous last, uh, last chapter. And he says, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, that's not a snowman, that's wicked, wicked people. The murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers could be drug, at, drug people dealing with drugs. The idolaters. And then he adds another group of people. All liars. Have you ever told a lie? If you just said no, you just lied. Okay. <laughs> Because we've all lied. He is saying from the really, really top of the, what we would call the top notch of evil all the way down to what we would say, oh, it's not that bad. He said, all of them shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He's talked about that earlier in the book of Romans. He's writing to a church that's located in Rome. Would you go there with me? Romans, let's start with chapter one. In the book of Romans, he's writing to these people and he's telling these people, hey, wait a minute. Don't be confused. Some of you sitting in the church say, well, wait a minute, I go to synagogue. I'm a, I'm a Jew, and I do this, and I do that, and I go to worship, and I'm a moral person. Well, he's describing individuals that go to hell in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Go back to chapter 1, first of all. And he's going to start with the you know, really bad stuff all the way down to what we consider not so bad. And he's describing people who are sinners in God's, in God's uh, evaluation. Verse 29. Those who are being filled with unrighteousness, fornication, I'm in 129 of Romans, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, that's gossipers, without understanding, covenant breakers, they don't keep their word, they, they lie, without natural affection, implacable. But there was one that I kind of jumped over, one verse, verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. What does he say at the end of verse 30? What's a sin that's categorized as that bad? Disobedient to whom? Yeah, should we ask your parents, have you ever disobeyed? 
He's put all of us in this category of sinners where he says further in chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. And he's talking to the church-going people in the, in the church of Rome. What then, verse 9, are we better than they, those who are the pagans, those who don't go to church? No, in no wise. For we have proved, before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are, what's your Bible say? All under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after the God of holiness. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good continuously. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. They've lied. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. By the way, doesn't verse 14 describe us at times? We bless God and we curse people. We praise, we pout. We cheer, we complain. He goes a little bit further. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he's basically describing you and me. That this is our innate. This is our nature. This is what we really are inside from little on. We have a bent towards sin because we are born sinners. We don't have to be taught how to disobey. We don't have to be taught how to gossip. We don't have to be taught how to lie. It just comes so natural to us. Well, because of our sinfulness, we don't deserve to get into heaven. And he makes it clear, nothing, nothing with, with sin that's not covered can get into heaven. We've talked about that the last two weeks in our series on heaven. And so we've got to get our sins covered. They've got to be forgiven. And we can't do it ourselves. I can't say, Deb, take care of my sin. Because she can't take care of my sin because she's got her own. We can't as parents take care of our kids' sins because we've got our own sins to take care of. We needed somebody who was sinless. And that's Jesus. And Jesus made it so clear. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. In verse 16, you all know this one, but I want to show you a little bit more. In John chapter 3 verse 16, he's talking about heaven and hell. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, what? Believes in him should not perish, there's your hell, but have heaven. Verse 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That is not God's desire to send us to hell, but that the world through him might be saved. The only way you're going to hell is if you refuse God's offer of forgiveness and you say, I don't need you, God. Well, then watch. Watch what he says in verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is what? May I ask this question? What do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. You're condemned already. I'm condemned already. Because he that believed not, the son, uh, believed not in the name of the Son of the Only Begotten. Go all the way down to the last verse of this chapter. He repeats it. For, for to get the attention of the readers. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see that everlasting life, but what is upon them already. I don't need to do a thing to go to hell. I don't need to do a thing. I'm bound there. But I need to make the right decision to call upon Christ to forgive me and to cleanse me of my sin so I can go into heaven. It's a right decision. A decision that by God's grace, I heard a message like this years ago, and when I was 16, I responded and said, I need you. I can't do it on my own. You need to make the right decision. 
You see, you've got a choice here this morning. You've got a choice of a fork. Or you've got a choice of a flame. It's your choice. A fork that says, I'm headed for heaven, or I'm headed for damnation. It's up to you. You've got to make a wise choice, folk. There's James Buckingham writes in his book that he's talking about, about Christian character. He writes in there and he says about, he's flying from Italy all the way to Melbourne, Florida. They had a stop in between. It was at a place, uh, Tampa Bay, that they were going to stop. And he said, so when they got there and they landed and they came up to the airport, the stewardesses are talking and saying over the, over the loudspeaker of the plane, they say, now, stay in your seat if you're headed for Melbourne. We're stopping here to unload, disembark the passengers that are headed for Tampa. As well, we're going to get other passengers that are going from Tampa to Melbourne. But stay seated if your flight is going to Melbourne. And so he was watching other people getting off the plane, and which was most of them. And he remembered hearing two ladies speaking in Italian on the way. They got up and they were all flustered. They got their stuff and they went out with the crowd. And then they were there. Other people got on and it was ready to, you know, take off. And they got on and they said, we're sorry. We have to wait a little bit. We're still trying to find two more passengers that are headed for Melbourne. And they waited and they waited. And he asked the stewardess, what's going on? She says, well, I think they got them. They're coming. And then here comes those two little old ladies that had gotten off. And they're all flustered. And they put their stuff and they sit down. And he asked the stewardess, says, what happened? The story went this way, that these two little old ladies got there. They don't speak any English. They land there in Tampa. They look out the window and they see palm trees. So they assume they're in Florida. They're where they want to be. They get, see people get up. They follow the crowd. They get out and they're in the airport, but they have no clue. They don't see any of their relatives. They don't know what they're doing. They have no clue and nobody around is speaking Italian to them. About that time, it's over the PAA and they're, they're announcing these ladies and the airport people understand that we got a problem, these two people, they might not speak English. Somebody went up to these two ladies and accosted them, one of the airport employees, and pointing back towards the plane. They thought they were getting kicked out of the United States, that they were being put back on the plane. They ran. It wasn't until somebody who spoke Italian tracked them down there when they were trying to you know, get away from those exporting them, and explained that they got back on the plane and then ended up at the right destination. They didn't make a wise choice, but part of the choice is they didn't know. They didn't know. Doesn't it just seem obvious to you that if people have the choice between these two different items, between the fork or the flame, that they need to know? That they need to be told about this fork? About how great heaven is? Don't they need to be warned? Don't they need somebody who has knowledge, somebody who knows the language, to tell them, to, to give them the options so they make a right choice? Whether they ask Christ, because if they do nothing, they end up in damnation. Because they're relying upon themselves. It just behooves you and me to say, wait a minute, that person that I see in the store, that person that I see at the gas station, that person that I work with, they might end up in these flames forever. I need to warn them. I need to tell them. Somebody's got to talk to them. What a change of, a, of, of look towards people. What a change of impressions when you think the reality of hell, the glamour of heaven, and this person, that person doesn't know what they need to know. Boy, the incentive is amazing. And it's all because of Jesus Christ making it possible. All they need to do is call upon him, ask him. They just need to be told he is willing to forgive them their sin. He is wanting to forgive them of his sin. He doesn't want to condemn them. Somebody's just got to tell them 
how great this Jesus is and what he's offering. In that same book, Buckingham tells about a story of something that happened in his family. He says that he came home one day from work, and when he came home, his two-and-a-half-year-old daughter was told she has to tell Daddy what she did. She's telling Daddy that she did something bad. The bad was he had gotten a ring from his father. It wasn't a wonderful ring, expensive, things like that, but it was a ring that belonged to his dad, and his dad gave it to him on his deathbed. So it had great value to him. He wouldn't wear the ring all the time, but oftentimes he left it right by the light on the dresser. His two-and-a-half-year-old knew that that was something really special, so she went into the bedroom that day and played where she wasn't supposed to be playing, and she took his ring. Well, she didn't want to be caught, so she went into the bathroom. And while she was in the bathroom playing with the ring, she dropped the ring and went into the toilet. Well, she had been taught anything that goes in the toilet, you flush away. So she flushed away his ring. Now she's standing before Daddy, and she's telling Daddy that I lost your ring. He became irate. Angry because she wasn't supposed to be playing with it. She lost this sentimental ring. There's no way of recovering it. So he was mad. Oh, he disciplined her, scolded her, but he said that wasn't the end of it. That evening at the supper table, he didn't even talk to her, didn't even acknowledge her. When she came to give a hug at night, it was just really, yeah, go. The next morning, he said, when I left for work, I kissed the others and my wife, but when I came to her, I just real quick pecked and gone. The little girl was devastated. He comes home that evening, and when he opens the door and walks in, he's confronted by the little girl with her older brother, who's five, six years old. The little girl is standing behind her older brother, looking out behind him, and the older brother says, Dad, we know that Becky did something really, really bad. She took your ring. She shouldn't have taken it. She feels really bad about it, and she really wants you to forgive her. We know that you've punished her, but she really wants to be forgiven. Would you forgive her? And he said, Dad, we also made you a new ring. Oh, the ring was made out of Band-Aids, wrapped around a bunch of grass. And they had put some real effort into it, and they handed it to him. And both of them have tears in their eyes. You know, the, the, you've been there, you know what I mean. He said, I just melted. I melted and realized, how can I, how can I say no? So, you know, there's all kinds of morals to it. But he said the one thing that stood out for him, for him was the way his son wanted to be the mediator. That his daughter was afraid, the daughter wasn't sure what to do, and she had tried, but she needed somebody to go between. The go-between was her big brother. And as a result, everything was restored. And as a result, he said, I wear that Band-Aid ring now more proudly than the one that my dad had given me. But he said the most amazing thing that I, that I came from that is how we need somebody to be a go-between between us and our father. We need a big brother. Do you know who our big brother is? It's Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he's your mediator? Aren't you glad that he has come to the father and said, Father, give them all a fork. Don't let any of them experience this. But it's your choice. You reject Christ and what he offers and you choose this. It's your choice to give your friends an opportunity to have this or have this. What are you going to do with it?